I was uh, recently reminded that my pulpit attire is horribly out of fashion. Uh, Apparently, I'm the last man standing in front of a congregation wearing a coat and tie. I was going to say standing in a pulpit, but they're out of fashion as well. Anyway, I was informed that preachers today wear jeans and polos, not a coat and tie. But let's not worry about what the preacher wears. Let's focus on what's really important. What should you wear to church? The psalm we read today instructed us to worship the Lord in holy attire. And many have insisted that that means everyone should dress up when they come to church, ignoring the fact that it can also be translated, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, or even worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. I'm pretty sure the psalmist wasn't thinking about the clothes we wear to church, but the proper attire for worship has been a very big issue in many churches. In fact, some have even been referred to as clothesline churches because they hang people out to dry if they dare to come to church inappropriately dressed. In fact, someone in class a week or two ago told of a young man who went to church in shorts and flip-flops and was told not to come back dressed like that. So he didn't go back. Battles have been fought in churches and in homes because most of us don't want to be told what to wear. And I'm afraid in our highly individualistic and competitive society, some would even balk at what Peter had to say about dress last week. He instructed us, to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. But why should we? The world tells us to dress for success. So why should we be forced to tie on the apron of humility? Well, Peter began to tell us why when he ended verse 5 by quoting from the Greek translation of Proverbs 3, 34. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He then goes on to further motivate us by reminding us of the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because He cares for you. The mighty hand of God is both a threat and a promise. When God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let his people go, he also said, I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. 
The mighty hand of God was for Pharaoh a hand of discipline. For the Israelites, it was a hand of deliverance. In Deuteronomy 5.15, Moses said, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. We are motivated by both the threat and the promise of the mighty hand of God. And Peter uses both aspects of it to bring us to the place where we willingly clothe ourselves with humility. He begins with a veiled threat. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. You know, Pharaoh fought it. But eventually, even he humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. Fortunately, most of us don't need ten plagues to convince us that the hand of God is mighty. Just a reminder is all that's needed for us to bow before him. And Peter's been talking about submission That's been a predominant theme in in his letter. He told us to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. He told servants to be submissive to their masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. He told wives in the same way, be submissive to their own husbands, so that even if any of them were disobedient to the word, they might be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe their chaste and respectful behavior. He told younger men in the church to be subject to their elders. And to sum up, He said, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. We are able to do that only when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. He is the reason we humble ourselves. He is the reason we submit To each other. We submit to the civil authorities because we know that the Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it on whom He wishes. We submit to our employers because we know that masters also have a master in heaven. Wives submit to their husbands because they know that as the man is the head of a woman, Christ is the head of every man. And we obey our leaders in the church and submit to them because we know they keep watch over our souls as those who will give an account. All are under the mighty hand of God. And we humble ourselves before Him knowing that to refuse to do so is to come under the heavy hand of God. But to willingly do so 
is to receive the promise that he will exalt you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. James gave us the same promise. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. You know, how much rivalry and bitterness could be avoided in life if we'd all learn to humble ourselves before God and each other, and then let him worry about any honor or glory we should receive. He said he will do it. He will exalt us. We do not have to exalt ourselves. Now, he may not exalt us in the way we think he should. And he may not exalt us when we think he should. He may not give us the promotion we feel we deserve or enable us to win the sporting event that seems so important to us. But he will exalt us. We may not be honored by men any more than men honored our Lord when they mocked him and spit upon him and planted on his head a crown of thorns. But God will exalt us. Just as he exalted his son, if we humble ourselves, as Jesus did. Paul reminds us of that in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind that each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was exalted to the throne of God because he humbled Himself. And in Revelation 3.21, Jesus said, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. We will be exalted in the proper way and at the proper time, even though it may not be as we expect. Eusebius, and one of the early church fathers, wrote of the martyrs, they humbled themselves under the mighty hand, and by it they have now been greatly exalted. Our exaltation may not come until we see Jesus face to face, but it will come, and it will be eternal. 
It won't be a victor's wreath that withers and crumbles into dust. It will be the unfading crown of glory. And that should be good enough for any of us. Temporal glory is such a fading thing. This year's champion is next year's loser. So don't worry about looking good in the eyes of your contemporaries. In fact, don't worry about anything. Instead, cast your anxieties on him. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him. Now, Peter is here partly quoting and partly interpreting the thought of Psalm 55:22. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. Now, you can't just throw your troubles away and get rid of them. Because some of them have to be dealt with. But you can get rid of the anxiety that's related to them. Because anxiety is a state of mind. The word comes from the root, meaning to divide, to distract, to draw in different directions. It's to lose focus of the problem and the solution of the problem. And most often that happens when we don't have a clear picture of the problem, because it's not here yet. J. Adams, the father of nuthetic confrontation, a form of biblical counseling, wrote this in a little booklet that I used to to give to people who were struggling with worry, a booklet entitled, What to Do About Worry. J. writes, What is worry? In the Bible, the word worry usually is translated anxiety or care. It ought to be translated worry so that we understand in contemporary language what God is talking about. The Greek word in the New Testament means to divide, part, rip, or tear apart. The word describes the effects of worry. That is what worry does to us. But worry itself is concern over the future. Worry is concern about something that one can do nothing about and that he cannot even be sure about. That is why it tears us apart. One who worries looks off into the future, but he finds that as he tries to get a hold of it, he can't because the future is not here yet. There is no way to grasp it. There is nothing to lay a hand on. There is nothing that can be done. The future is future, and the worrier cannot control it. He's not even sure of what it will look like. No one but God knows its true shape. So the worrier worries about what might happen. First, he imagines that matters will be this way. But then he thinks they might be that way. Because he cannot be sure and cannot control the future, he allows it to tear him apart if he dwells on it and becomes overly concerned about it. That is what worry is. According to the Bible, it is concern over the unknown and uncontrollable future that tears one apart. If that's what worry is, you may say, what can be done about it? Listen to Jesus. He spoke plainly about worry. He has the answer. Jesus directs 
do not be anxious. That is, do not worry. But he does not leave the matter there. He goes on to explain how to overcome worry. He concludes a vital discussion concerning anxiety over life's necessities with these tremendously significant words. Therefore, do not be anxious for, worried about, tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. You see, Jesus made it clear that worry focuses upon tomorrow. That is what is wrong with worry. It is the wrong focus on life. Jesus says that it is wrong to let tomorrow's possible problems tear you apart today. Peter says, cast your anxiety, your worry, upon him. And we cast our anxiety upon the Lord when we trust him with the future. You can't control tomorrow. And you can't control what people are going to think about you tomorrow. The harder you try to impress them, the greater the chances you'll offend them or someone else in the process. So don't try to impress. Just tie on the garment of humility and serve one another. Trusting that God will exalt you in the proper way at the proper time. And that he will see to it that your needs are met. Your emotional as well as your physical needs. The antidote to worry is trust. And you can trust God because he cares for you. What a great Sentence this is. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had this to say about anxiety and God's care for us. For this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to one's lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. that They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do for you? O men of little faith, do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. But it can be read at the 
wrong time. Several years ago, this isn't on the outline. I'm No, I'm going off the reservation. Several years ago, we, we took a trip down to Missouri. And we packed all the, the luggage, and I carried it out to the car. And I did see one big suitcase in the hallway. I thought Marilyn didn't need it. <laughs> we got to our cabin in the Ozarks and unloaded all the luggage. And she says, where are my clothes? I said, everything's here. She said, no, the big suitcase. Well, I forgot it. She was not really happy about that. And being the wise pastoral leader that I am, I went out and sat by her and opened up the scriptures. <laughs> yes, I did. It was not well received. <laughs> so there is a time and a place to share that, okay? <laughs> but this is the time and this is the place, okay? Our Heavenly Father knows what we need. And His mighty hand is surely strong enough to provide it. Who would doubt the power of God to provide for His children? And who can doubt His love? He's already proven how much He loves us. He loves us enough to humble Himself. And to become one of us. So he could die for us. What more does he need to do? I love the way J.B. Phillips translates or paraphrases Romans 8, 31 and 32. In face of all this, what is there left to say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not grudge his own son, but gave him up for us all. Can we not trust such a God to give us with him everything else that we can need? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Do you believe it? Then do it. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And then surrender your all under the mighty hand of God. If we do that, he will exalt us. That's the promise of that mighty hand. Let's willingly clothe ourselves with humility. None of us is too good or too special to not crawl around and work on the building or mow grass or change diapers. Tie on the apron of humility, and God will exalt you. Cast your anxieties on Him. Don't worry about what someone's going to think. 
He will exalt you in the proper time, the proper place, because he cares for you. Let's surrender to his lordship. Let's stand.